3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. This is 3CR Breakfast. How are we all doing today? James, good morning, how are you? Good morning, I'm awake, I'm feeling good. That's awesome. Um, I am very, very excited after the weekend. How was it? It's fantastic. It's a, it's a watch. big weekend of sport mm-hmm. and uh, the country is buzzing. Mm-hmm. Even the non-sport people seem to be buzzing because the Matildas <laughs> beat France. Yes. The third best team in the world. Wow. We're through to the the final four mm-hmm. of the World, world, world I, Cup. Yeah, I heard. Um, I actually don't really, I don't watch sports to be honest and I'm not a sports person unfortunately. But I heard it's the first time Australia has gone into the semi-finals for Matildas. Is that correct? Yes, first mm. time any any team, men's or women's, from Australia has gotten this far into a World Cup. Uh, so it's significant from mm. just a football stand, standpoint. Mm. But it's also an incredibly important cultural moment. So just a stat for your morning, everybody. <laughs> uh, the Matildas game was the largest TV audience since Kathy Freeman winning the gold at the 2000 Olympics. About 5 million people countrywide were watching and we got up and we won and that's just phenomenal the stuff that these women are doing on the field is amazing and just for context everybody i do host a sports show on thursdays so my head's right in this and i'm very very happy how was your weekend grace good 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 uh i was basically just i think i was working the morning shift for my part-time but other than that i went out with some of my friends who have already graduated from their semester this year, which is quite early in the year, but they have so, and they're actually heading back to Malaysia very soon. So I've just been hanging out with them and spending time, and also I helped one of them move out because they were they had to change change accommodations. So yeah, just busy, but also helpful, helpful, helpful weekend. Yeah, how's uh how's study going? Good. I don't think I've been doing enough. I'm already in week three as of this week and I feel like I haven't really done any reviewing or I've just procrastinated the past, now going to my third week. So I guess that's not a good thing because I really have to get into it already by now, but I haven't, so that's a bad thing. Yeah, that's not great. But (laughs) we'll get there. Last semester, we're almost there. That is true. Fantastic. I finished my internship just last week. I just remember. I just realized I just finished my internship last week. So yeah, I'm not really sure what to do now because that's been my ongoing thing for like the past two months. So yeah, okay. that's the way it goes, isn't it? Yeah, we've got a big show today. Mm-hmm. So today is the start of Three CR's Artificial Intelligence Special Week yes. here on Breakfast. So for every breakfast show across the week, just about. We'll be talking about artificial intelligence. It's going to be scary, but it's going to be enlightening as well. And we've got a pretty good show lined up for you today. Uh, first, we'll have a bilingual education 
show uh, or segment. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk us through what to expect there, Grace? Yes. So I spoke with Dr. Ricky Bundegaard Nielsen. She's an experimental psycholinguist with a particular interest in acquiring and processing Australian Indigenous languages. I've actually spoke to Dr. Ricky about a few weeks back about baby talks with the Walpiri language. And so I basically be speaking her to spoke to her about the uh, today about the needs for bilingual teaching of indigenous language at schools. So we're going to be listening to that conversation. And I just want to put this as an announcement out just before I we go into talking about the second segment. La Trope staff are actually striking on this Thursday wow. uh, to demand the secure of jobs and pay rises in lines with inflation. Lotrop staffs are actually one of the worst paid in the country and the conditions have been further slashed by the university management. Wow. So the this Thursday, the staffs are shutting down the university to push management to grant their demands. And it will, so yeah, if you want to, you could join a rally at 10 a.m. at the Agora at Lotrop University. Yeah, stand with our comrades. Awesome, yep. How good. Then in the second segment of the show, we've got a fascinating interview mm-hmm. uh, on the intersections of in- Indigenous peoples and culture and artificial intelligence with Dr. Maggie Walters. Yep. So Dr. Maggie Walters is a Palawa descending from the Parambinian people of the northeastern Tasmania and a member of the Tasmanian Aboriginal Bridge family. She's a founding member of the Miam Nari Wingara Australian Indigenous Data Sovereignty Collectives and an active participant in the national and international Indigenous Data Sovereignty Networks. So we're going to be speaking about a very interesting conversation about the Indigenous Data Sovereignty and what's the Indigenous perspective on the AI. So yeah, good stuff there. Indigenous Data Sovereignty. It sounds like a a pretty pretty intense idea, but I want to know more. Yes, sir. So before we get into a lot of the, uh, uh, and then I should say our last segment for the day, we're getting uh, Radio MMT star uh, Anne Maxwell on to talk about the future of work and artificial intelligence. And of course does Radio MMT on every second Friday with Kev. And I love a bit of MMT, modern monetary theory, an alternative approach to economics and the money supply, which is all... It's all good stuff, and that'll just be a conversation about what we see works looking like, a few personal anecdotes with artificial intelligence. I know I have one, which is pretty scary, but we'll get there. So to start off, ease you into your morning, we're going to play a song by Paul Kelly, just to, you know, get the blood flowing a bit, Mm -hmm. before too long, Mm -hmm. classic, and then we'll jump into our first segment. Before too long, the one that's your loving, wish that Lonely nights will send me on High is the tide 
That was Before Too Long by Paul Kelly. We have never too long for anything, but I hope our listeners will be staying as long as they can for our next segment. Very smooth. <laughs> so I'll be speaking to Dr. Ricky Bundugat Nielsen. She is an experimental psycholinguist with a particular interest in inquiring and processing the Australian Indigenous languages. We discussed the need for bilingual teaching of Indigenous language at schools with we a bit of discussion, particularly with the language Creole. Let's take it away. So joining me this morning is Dr. Ricky Bundagat nielsen Hi, Ricky. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, good. So, so, so glad to have you back on our show and talking about something different this time, but obviously still about uh, language. So, Ricky, you... There was a new article released on a conversation about uh, the need for bilingual teaching of Indigenous language at schools. And there was a mention of the Closing the Gap report. Can you explain a bit what, what that was, just for our listeners to understand? Absolutely. So each year the, the government sets some targets um, intending for or intending to improve the, the lives in, in, in many respects for Indigenous Australians. Um, and they are, they are clearly defined targets that, that also in, involve education. And when we're looking at the education outcomes for Indigenous Australians, um, they are quite different from, from those of, of the, the other part of the population. Um, there's, a, there's less um, school attainment, and of course, um, in many cases, also poorer employment following school. Mm, I see. And this is, of course, um, an, a major issue, uh, both for the, for the individuals involved, but also for Australia as a, as a country. I see. And so how did you investigate this outcomes of, like, because of uh, all kinds of poor education due to the cross-language difficulties? Yeah. Well, we know that, that the, the outcomes for Indigenous Australians um, differ by, by where you live and what language you speak. So, mm-hmm. so outcomes poorer, if we can say it like that, um, on these benchmarks tests, if you look at remote communities and communities where, where the language in the community is not English. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it shouldn't really be surprising, right, that if you don't speak English, um, you, will, you will do um, less well. And on an English-based task, and that goes for, for instance, for playing in schools. 
Um, so what we did was was um, look at it a bit differently. We decided we might want to know not so much how how kids who speak a different language other than English um, do on English tests, but how we, they might fare if we, if we actually looked at their own language and and investigated how they might perform in tasks similar to those that, that are the foundation for learning to read, for instance, um, but we conducted them in their own language. And we did that with a, with a language called Creole, which is the largest indigenous language in Australia after Aboriginal English. Mm. And can you explain what Creole is um, for our listeners who don't know what exactly that language is about? Yeah. Of course. So Creole is what we call a contact language, and it's a language that's developed by by users of indigenous languages and users of of um, English as a kind of um, bridging the, the the communication divide um, in the early settlement period. So Creole in in Australia is, is just over a hundred years old, probably, mm-hmm. um, and and formed by contact between white settlers in the probably in the agrarian industry to begin with, mm. and, and speakers of a range of indigenous languages across the, the top end in Queensland. Mm. And now it's, it's, a, it's a language in its own right. It's, it's different s- to English. It's definitely not English, but it's also definitely not a traditional Australian language, right? Mm, I see. Is it the same thing as, because I know Creole, there's another spelling for it, which is C-R-E-O-L-E. Is that, that's not the same thing, right? Well, Creole, Creole. There are many Creoles across the world. It's, mm-hmm. Australia is not the only work, place in the world where where language contact has happened in a typically in a colonial setting, mm-hmm. but not always in a colonial setting. Um, and and communication is is important. It's important to to all people. And and when you when you are in a situation where the the gap is so that you, you can't just readily speak each other's language. Yep. It, they they happen they can form and we call all of those contact languages creoles once they once they've been picked up and used as a first language with that spelling of c r e o l e um the the spelling of the particular language in australia is the k r i o l spelling um, and there are many creoles all over the world and 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 also not uh, creoles that don't involve english for instance but that involve other um languages mm, interesting and obviously with the Creole language, you did a study with it uh, to test uh, the children to see whether um, is it Creole more, more of their language or is it English? And so how was that study like? Could you share a bit about that? Absolutely. So so when, when you learn to read um, yep. or when you have to learn to read, it, learning to read requires that you know, of course, the sounds of your language. Right? Those are the building blocks of, of spelling systems that are phonemic like English. So, so we we do a lot of implicit teaching to kids when we, when they're little in storybooks. We do rhyming. We do a lot of things um, that set children up for for knowing the basics of words before they really start to read, and that sets them up to succeed. When when you do that, of course, you're doing it in a language, and and in in English speaking families, they do they do that in English. In Creole speaking families, um, reading English is not necessarily only going to help or it's not necessarily going to align with what they have uh, come to know about their first language in their homes. So we've, we know that Creole, or, or one of the things that Creole that has happened with, with Creole is that it's been, it's not been understood uh, well in terms of, of its sound system. 
And that's that's kind of limited the amount of attention that researchers have given to Creole and and to kids speaking Creole in an education setting, mm. because we don't know um, if kids or, or we didn't know in a, or people assumed that that speaking English would be something that Creole speaking kids could kind of easily pick up because the languages are related, because many of the words in Creole come from English historically. But it's not the case that it's the same language. And what our study showed was that the sound system, so the building blocks of Creole, are overlapping in some regards with English, but in other regards, they are quite different. Um, and even some of those sounds that we share between the two languages and mm. we share in some of the shared words are quite different. And that means that if you if you give Creole children lit- early literacy tasks and activities that are based on English-sounding words, they may not actually perceive what it is that you are you are you are telling them in English. They may simply miss out on important information because the English words and the English sounds are not aligned with their native language. Mm, I see. That's very interesting. And we we had a conversation about the baby talks in the wild period language before mm. about uh, I think more than a month ago now already. So is there any relation here yeah. with baby talks with the with the way the kids are learning the Creole language? Um, we no one has actually studied baby talk in Creole, so mm. so we don't know what it looks like. Mm. We know that that baby talk is quite um, is quite prevalent across the world, and I would be very surprised if if creole speaking parents don't do something similar to their kids to scaffold their learning and and that's of course why uh, and you're ex- extremely um, right to point it out that's why we we when we look at creole speaking kids and we look at their school performance for instance and we only test them in english we may miss out on a lot of competency that they have we may miss out they may underperform not because they're not ready to learn to read, for instance, or because they don't know Creole or because Creole varies or any of those other explanations, but simply because it's no different to taking an English-speaking child and giving them a NAPLAN in English, or I mean in Creole or mm. or any other language that they don't speak. And and turning the turning the attention to, to their competency in Creole shows that these kids aren't, you know, def, def, uh, suffering from some kind of deficit, right? They are ready to learn to read so long as you teach them in the language that they actually speak. Mm, I see. And just so just coming out to the last question about this whole thing, do you, why, why do we think we need that bilingual, bilingual education? Like, do you think this is going to be beneficial for bit, particularly the indigenous children speaking Creole? Or will this be something good for, for the entire school? Oh, it would be good for everyone. Um, it would be good on on a personal level, of course, for children that have the school um, experience. It it must be incredibly frustrating to to sit in situation every day for young kids and 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 fail to understand what's going on. That's mm-hmm. not a very um, wonderful feeling, right, for small children. Mm-hmm. On a on a sort of socioeconomical scale, of course, it's important that that. All Australians, no matter where they live and, and no matter what their first language is, have the opportunity to get the best education that, that there is. And Australia does educate well in most other places. And it's it's outrageous that, that good education can't be come by 
um, in in lots of parts of Australia um, where, where mm. it should be equally accessible. And again, that ties on to, of course, the, the kind of opportunities that, that kids have when they grow up and leave school for, for further education, for employment, um, and for, for making the choices that they, of course, have the right to make about how they want to live their life. Mm, I see. that That is very true. That is very true. All right, Ricky, thank you so much for uh, coming on our show. You're most welcome. Always a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, Free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja Nation, my people, who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org Email info at buy-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. And that was Dr. Ricky Pundagat Nielsen speaking about the needs for bilingual teaching of indigenous languages at schools. Dr. Ricky is an experimental psycholinguist with a particular interest in inquiring and processing Australian indigenous languages. We actually spoke about a month ago talking about the baby, baby talks with the wild period language. There was a discovery made. So, yeah. You, if you want to listen to that interview, you can head on to Wednesday Brecky's, uh, Wednesday Brecky's page, and from there you can have a listen to like our conversation. Then, very well done, Grace. Great interview. Thank learnt, you. Learned a lot. Thank you. Uh, we're going to go to another song now. Uh, just over the last week, the 2023 National Indigenous Music Awards occurred, with a whole host of artists getting awards. Um, and one of Melbourne's very own won the Best New Talent of the Year. That was the incredible Bumpy. 
So we're going to play one of Bumpy's songs. Uh, frankly, it's it's amazing. Uh, in my, I always try and play Bumpy whenever I can. So this is Falling by Bumpy, and it may jerk a tear, so just be careful. Um, but, you know, it's always good to have a cry on a Monday morning. Nothing wrong with that. Enjoy. Just a temporary love Isn't that what it's supposed to be? Say 
again. That was Falling by Pompey. A beautiful, sentimental song to tune in early this morning. But that's all good. We, ha- we had a very great fresh start, but also nice to have a bit of chill, a chilly moment at some times. And now I'm going to be speaking about a very interesting topic heading into our AI special now. I will be speaking to Dr. Maggie Walters. Dr. Maggie is a Palawa woman descending from the Parambinian people of the northeastern Tasmania and a member of the Tasmanian Aboriginal Bridge family. She holds the dual roles of Professor of Sociology and Pro-Vice-Chancellor Aboriginal Research and Leadership at the University of Tasmania. She is a founding member of the Mayam Nari Wingara Australian Indigenous Data Sovereignty Collective and an active particip- participant in national and interna- uh, international Indigenous Data Sovereignty Networks. So basically, we're going to be discussing today on uh, on the paper that she wrote about, co-wrote about the Indigenous Data Sovereignty. So joining me this morning is Dr. Maggie. Good morning, Maggie. Uh, good morning, Grace. How are you? I'm very well. That's lovely to hear early this morning. So Maggie, we're going to be breaking down this study you did, uh, sorry, report uh, into about two parts. So we just want to focus first a bit more on like the whole negative consequences of the AI and the Indigenous people. So how how did the AI, in a way, racially discriminate the Indigenous people? Like what was the negative consequences there? Well, look... um As you know, AI is about digital technologies that enable machines to perform tasks um, and that they do predictive risk modelling, they have uh, algorithms, etc. And they do hold a lot of promise. The Mm. trouble is that they also come with a lot of risks. And for First Peoples, it's likely that we will encounter far more of the risks than we will the benefits because... Predictive models, um, you've got to go back to first principles and say, yes, you've got machine learning, you've got algorithms, but at the base of all of these things are people. Humans write the algorithms. Humans set up um, the technology to actually do the machine learning and humans set up, and they have to feed in a whole lot of assumptions. Mm. And so that we know whenever first people's assumptions are made about us, then it's always going to be negative. So that we are more likely to be represented in the groups for which predictive modelling is done. So we've already seen in New Zealand that you do not even have to think about any racial factors for Māori to be more affected by predictive modelling, because Māori are more likely to be in groups that will be um, picked up by the police, um, whether children will succeed at school. So the risks are already there. And the risk is that AI will just be as um, negative about First Peoples as general society is. But because it's machine learning, people will think that it's objective and it's not necessarily so. 
So I I guess I guess the complicated part here for the listeners to understand is how do these algorithms work, and so to, how how do we know how, whose reality do they reflect here? Like how how does this how does this even how does this algorithm even operate? Well, I don't know how they operate, and that's the problem. <laughs> um, I'm I'm not an algorithm specialist. Um, mm. I work with data, but I don't write algorithms. But the thing is that. The vast majority of those people who are using the algorithms, who are using predictive modelling, who are using any of these technologies, have no idea how these things work. And mm. that's part of the risk as well. Because it's so complex and because it's so specialised that most people using them, even people who know a lot about data, really don't know how they work and they do not... You know, the, the old car analogy... You need to be able to look under the bonnet to see what's happening down there. Well, you can't uh, with the vast majority of these um, the, the AI. So, yes, there's promise, but yes, there's big risks. And the biggest risk for First Peoples is that we will be further marginalised and further targeted. Mm, I see. Yeah, that 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 is very that's very interesting on that side. And obviously, we also don't know who kind of regulates and controls these these like data like who sets them what is going and who allows for these to happen is that correct that's right we don't and, and well what we do know mm. is that it won't be um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands people mm. so we, we know that we are not going to be in the decision making uh, positions deciding when and how these things are going to be used so we also know that there's a problem even with the base data. Mm-hmm. So the base data that have been used and fed into these things are, are all very um, deficit-based. So any data about First Peoples in Australia is nearly all deficit-based. It's about how poor we are, how sick we are, how poorly educated we are, how incarcerated we are. So that's the sort of data that is... Uh, underpinning uh, these um, AI and the algorithms that uh, are developed to to move to do this predictive modelling. Mm. And and you mentioned also as well in the paper that the, the, this is how the indigenous people are considered as data subjects. So yes, mm. yes. <laughs> right since colonisation began, mm. data have been collected about us. Um, to for government purposes, for the purposes of the state. Now, from then until now, mm. the state would say, well, we're collecting these data because we want to help. We want to find out how many people there are. We want to find out how sick people are. But it's the same data collected again and again, and it hasn't really changed since colonial days. And as we can see from the closing the gap, despite all this data collection things have not changed. And it's always a very um, data that's focused on uh, Aboriginal people, families and communities without any focus on why people are unhealthy. (laughs) Mm. What is it about living an Aboriginal life in Australia that means you're far more likely to commit suicide, that you're far more likely to have a mental health problem, that you're far more likely even to get sick and die of cancer. What is it about living an Aboriginal life in Australia that make, that leads to those outcomes? And that's we don't have data on that. Mm, so it's kind of like 
there's there's this whole possibly misleading and also very very misinformed on like the actual reality of the indigenous people and and obviously with whoever is setting and creating these data it's not going to 100% really reflect the reality of the indigenous people no it it doesn't what it reflects mm. is a very very small slice of indigenous life mm. that the government or the state is interested in it doesn't reflect what indigenous people want to know or need to know uh, and it certainly doesn't reflect what we need to know for nation rebuilding, for um, moving things forward and actually changing people's health, people's rates of mental illness, uh, lowering suicide rates, etc. I see. And you mentioned a bit about, uh, and obviously with all this, obviously we can't really, I guess, argue or try to lobby uh, or like write letters or protests for in regards to algorithms because this is an AI thing and not an actual human. So you mentioned you mentioned the <laughs> hands off. Where would you write them to, Grace? Where <laughs> would you write the letters to? <laughs> that is true. That is true. That's when I was, that's why I was when I reading your study. I was like, that is true. How are we going to argue about this? It doesn't, we, we can't really do anything, can we? And you mentioned about the hands off myth of the AI as a act as justification. Uh, can you explain what that meant? I just want to know about that, curious about it. Well, it, it's because it's seen as technology, mm. it's seen as something apart from society, it's seen as technical rather than social. Mm. But it's not, of course. I mean, everything is part of society and technology does not, same as Aboriginal ill health, mm. uh, technology does not exist outside of the social system in which it operates and it reflects that social system. But that is lost the idea that somehow the technology is reflecting the social system, including the power imbalances within that social system. Um, so they're magnifying um, the power imbalances. Become, because it's technology, because it's computer-based, um, and even the term AI, artificial intelligence, puts it into another realm where it actually isn't because, it's again, it's people and, and members of society... Uh, and social structures and, and organisations which are actually using this AI for very social and cultural purposes. Mm, I but see. because it's technology, people think it must be objective. And it also, it must be true. Mm. So if you are running a, a predictive risk uh, model, the answers come out the end and say, well, Aboriginal kids are far more at risk um, of committing crimes then it's not questioned because it's come from AI in the same way that it would be if it was a person writing a paper. I see. And so now we're going to be going to our second part, which is going to be talking about the Indigenous Data Sovereignty, which also we can stand it for IDSOV. So what is this Indigenous Data Sovereignty? And can you just give our listeners about a brief explanation of what that is? Okay, so um, this, this, my complaints uh, about the deficit nature of Indigenous data is not new. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, um, it was a major um, part of people uh, from the United Nations Permanent Forum of uh, Indigenous Forum. Complaints about data have been coming for a very long time. So Indigenous peoples from all over the world, and especially the Anglo-colonised world, like US, Canada, Australia, Aotearoa, New Zealand, 
have all been long complaining about data. So that has co- that level of unhappiness and the advocacy for change has coalesced into what we now call the Indigenous Data Sovereignty Movement. Mm-hmm. And Indigenous Data Sovereignty basically says that it is the right of Indigenous peoples to determine the means, collection, analysis, interpretation, management, dissemination and reuse of data pertaining to the Indigenous peoples from whom it has been derived or to whom it relates. It is about our collective rights to data, about our people's territories, lifeways and natural resources. So when that sort of um, that definition was globally agreed um, in 2018, but of course even then, even just five years ago, mm. AI was not nearly as um, large on the landscape as it is now. Mm-hmm. But that same definition still applies. That is about indigenous rights to data, to our own data, and deciding what are collected and how they are used. Mm. So basically, this uh, IDSOF is a, I guess, a, a, pla- a, a base to protect the rights and the data of what can be said and what can be put out in for the, into like the actual like technological system. And it, it is it in a way like a law to protect the rights of the indigenous data? Well, it probably should be a law, but mm-hmm. it's not, um, of course. But it is uh, a movement of indigenous peoples, and it's. More, it's about Indigenous rights, but yep. it's also about Indigenous leadership and Indigenous ownership. So it's not something that somebody else can run off with, some non-Indigenous people, and say, OK, we'll, we'll look after your rights. It's about knowing that when Indigenous people are not the decision-makers, we do often, even with the best of intentions, get decisions that are not in our interests. So it's about ensuring that when it comes to our data, we are the people who are making the decisions about how they are used. And certainly we should be. And if they're going to be, data is going to be fed into algorithms or predictive risk modelling, mm. we need to be at the table making the decisions about how that is done and where it is used. Mm. And how, how, does this, how does this work with... Uh can you give an example of, uh, in comparison with Australia and New Zealand, like just roughly of what, how is this going to be, how, how does this work, basically? Uh, well, Australia has, um, we have an Indigenous data sovereignty collective here called Maya Nari Wingara. Yep. And that is a, a group of about uh, 12 of us. Um, and we work with others as well, but it's a core group of 12 executive members who work together to promote Indigenous data sovereignty, Indigenous rights and Indigenous governance, um, especially through state agencies, because that's where most of these data are collected and held. Um, We work also with our sister organisations in the US and Canada and New Zealand. Um, And we work on a global... We've just had a, a global Indigenous Data Alliance meeting in Melbourne, looking specifically at data held by universities. We also just held a Indigenous Data Governance Summit uh, in in conjunction with the Lowitzer Conference in Cairns in June, and we had more than 130 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders in the room, mm. uh, setting down the protocols of what 
Indigenous data governance, which is the active mechanism of Indigenous data sovereignty, what the protocols are for that to happen. Because you, you need rules around this, because otherwise, as we know, um, somebody will say, OK, we'll talk to one Aboriginal person, we'll consult, and then that will be done. And we're sort of saying, well, consulting um, has not worked for 200 years. Mm. Uh, in this case, we don't want to consult. What we want to do is have a seat at the decision-making table. And governance has to look like this, or you can't call it governance. Mm. So this, this is potentially going to be a very... Uh, supposedly it's meant to be a very powerful platform for people, uh, for the Indigenous people to have to have a say and decide properly and logistically on what can be said and what can be done. So, yes. yep, awesome. And and I guess now this comes to just understanding this this whole thing with the IDSoft and also the AI, basically. So, it, so the IDSoft has the ability to protect, but I guess in a way it also fears the risk of AI possibly risking things that are of discrimination despite the, the, the data sovereignty? Yes, there, there is, because, you know, the, these things are being rolled out very, very quickly. Mm. Um, and they're often, there is a, just sort of a, a, a sort of like a, a, a positive belief system in technology. Now, mm. of course, that's, technology does wonderful things. But when you have this sort of positive belief system, it can be very hard to question it. But we know already, for example, that sort of... Um, in the States, in the United States, that they've already found very quickly that uh, algorithms and machine learning pick up um, racial biases. Yep. And, 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 for example, we now have, you know, the, the chat GPT, which is sort of the AI which can write essays for you in universities. Mm. And, I, I, and what that does is sort of glean through the web and so uh, a colleague of ours on the Mayam Nairawangara actually got ChatGPT and asked it to write some essays on Indigenous data sovereignty to see what it would do. Mm. And they weren't that bad. But then we realised why. It was because the only material out there about Indigenous data sovereignty is written by Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. So it gleaned and actually got quite... Um, an Indigenous perspective because that's the only material out there, but that's not the case for nearly everything else. And it probably won't be the case for Indigenous data sovereignty once we get other people writing, especially non-Indigenous people writing and perhaps critiquing. So most of the material out there about Aboriginal people is negative. It's deficit-based. It talks about what's wrong with us, Mm. how we are the problem. So if AI is scanning the web and pulling all these sources together and then constructing a narrative, that narrative is going to be really, really negative. Um, and I think anybody could, if they're using ChatGPT, could probably run that uh, and then actually find out the sort of things that will be said about Aboriginal people from these AI um, generating machines. I see. So it just really, it's very complicated here, I guess. We can't really come to a conclusion. We can uh, we can say that, is that correct? That uh, 
there's risk, but there's, there's so much risk uh, out there in the technological world, in the AI. But at the same time, there, there can be benefits. There can be benefits to contributing good information about the indigenous, indigenous people. Yes, but we're yet to have those explained to us. So I've yet to meet anybody that can tell me how this is going to benefit First Peoples. I'd love to hear that. Um, I'm hopeful that it can, but I'm yet to meet anybody that can actually tell me how it will benefit us. Mm, I see. Well, uh, Professor Maggie Walters, unfortunately, we are already going to be running out of time soon. So I, but I just want to get 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 your last uh, last pers- pers- perspective on on this. Do you think the 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 indigenous sovereignty data? The, this platform will it be what what is your perspective that this can be very helpful to fully develop possibly in the future uh, on protecting the the data of the uh, the rights and information of the indigenous people well i think i would add my voice to all the others uh, non-indigenous voices as, as well talking about some sort of regulation of ai mm-hmm. that there needs to be social um, regulation of AI, there needs to be rules around how it can be used, who can use it, and what are the... uh, And the state needs to set these, and and what are the measures in there that you put in before you uh, adopt an AI technology to make sure that it does not discriminate and that it does not further marginalise those in society who cannot... Uh, protect themselves. So it, it cannot just be allowed to develop um, without regulations and without policies and without very careful um, understanding of what it intends to do and also what are the unintended consequences of applying those um, technologies to broader society. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Maggie. That was really insightful. Uh, thank you, Grace. All right. Thank you, Maggie. You take care. Bye. Bye. And that was Dr. Maggie Walters. Dr. Maggie is a Palawan woman for descending from the Parambinan people of the northeastern Tasmania and a member of the Tasmanian Aboriginal Bridge family. Maggie is a founding member of the Miam Nari Ringara. Australian Indigenous Data Sovereignty Collective and an active participant in national and international Indigenous data sovereignty networks. She has published extensively on this topic, most recently the voice of Indigenous data. So she also holds the dual roles of the Professor of Sociology and Pro-Vice-Chancellor, Aboriginal Research and Leadership at the University and Tasmania. So that was very interesting chat there, James, was it? Phenomenal. Great yes. work. Well done. Thank you. Uh, AI, scary. Mm-hmm. Scary. <laughs> it, is, it is very scary. I think just listening to what Maggie was talking about with this whole thing is just, it seems, it might seem like it's not too complicated trying to understand that, okay, so there is risk and there's also no risk, but then is it really just that, like, but what we I think we don't know enough yet on what can really happen in the future because obviously uh, obviously Maggie has been writing a lot about uh, indigenous data sovereignty, but at the same time, I guess we can only fully understand how we can really help with using this when AI gets really really even more dangerous than it already is. Yeah, I, so, g- I guess it's 
it seems to me it's like a tool and the way the tool is used mm. is reflective of who uses the tool. Yeah. And but it, it, you look at who's developing AI the most and yeah. it's, you know, corporations and very patriarchal organizations. And you think, hmm, I don't have much much hope in that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, and I also, the other thing that keeps sticking in my mind, I watched the movie Oppenheimer the other day. Mm. So the word like weapon of mass destruction's in my mind. Mm. And then I thought, oh, what other weapons of mass destruction are there? Yeah. And some people are saying AI could be one of those things. Mm. Now, that's a doomsday scenario and that's very dystopian. But like Maggie highlighted, it, yeah. it does have potential to inflict yeah. a lot of suffering on people if we don't think about it yeah, very much. Exactly. It, it's just it's just quite scary how the AI can be so openly racist and mm. and also very discriminative towards people that how that how do we even know how did they get to algorize and regulate to make such decisions and it's just really it's just so weird because obviously machines are not naturally developed they're created by someone so who who is creating these data who is um, inputting this possibly misleading and information negative information about the indigenous people into these mm. algorithms and the ai so it's just very scary to see that they can do such things so mm. yeah but We'll see. Let's see what happens in the future. Yes. So we'll go to a bit of uh, a few announcements and a song now. Uh, we've got a song that we played a little bit last week, but we ran out of time to really get to the whole thing. This is Trying to Outrun the Sun by the legendary Kutcher Edwards.
And you are back on Monday Breakfast. It is 8.03 in the morning. It's looking a little sunny out there, which is quite nice. Now, we are joined by Radio MMT co-host Anne Maxwell. How are you doing, Anne? Hello, James. You got me out of bed early this morning. Yes, and it's <laughs> wonderful that you're here. We're going to be talking about AI and the future of work from a modern monetary theory perspective. Now, just to get started, how did mm. you get into all this modern monetary theory stuff, Anne? Uh, well, I was bitten by the economics bug as a result of experiencing long-term unemployment, Ooh. which is defined as over 12 months. Mm. So as a result, I got involved with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, who are, by the way, still going strong, and I highly recommend people uh, head to their social media and even uh, join up as members because they offer excellent services for uh, unemployed people. Um, but at the Unemployed Workers Union, that's where I got my economics education. Ah, what a place to get educated on economics. Uh-huh. And before that, you know, I had less than no interest in economics. Mm. You know, I was very much one of those people who walk around saying, oh, it's too complicated, it's too difficult to understand, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. You know, what does it have to do with me? But once you get bitten by the uh, the economics bug, um, it's just fascinating. Mm. And uh, so at the AUWU, they were introducing me to modern monetary theory. Yeah. So MMT is the kind of economics that um, I now follow or we now use on our show, Radio MMT. Brought to you every second Friday on 3CR, <laughs> is that right? Pretty much. We do two shows every month. So we do a, a an hour on the second Friday and an hour on the fourth Friday, which mm. is not always the last Friday <laughs> of the month, I've discovered. There's a fifth Friday. Um, and so that's at 5.30pm and that's myself and my co-host Kevin Gaynor and we crossed paths because I started after the AUWU, I started uh, looking out for people who were into this modern monetary theory and that's where I came across Kevin. Then we had the opportunity to do Radio MMT and uh, it's the rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> Um, and I should say that the tagline for Radio MMT is economics for the rest of us. Ooh, you've done your research. I have done my research. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm an avid listener. Oh, lovely. Um, and that's kind of what we want to talk about today with regards to AI. You know, when you talk about AI, there's often a threat or a worry about job losses, mm -hmm. massive redundancies, right. robots and machines taking our jobs. Right. Uh, from your perspective, does MMT tend to deal with these questions? MMT fully deals with these questions. Whoa. So MMT is very concerned with how do you have an economy that is a full employment economy? Full employment. Right. So That, that means everyone employed, not the silly neoliberal definition where like they're still unemployed. Correct. Correct. So, so real genuine full employment means that anyone who wants a paid work has paid work. Mm. And of course, little did I know until I joined the Unemployed Workers Union that our government, both sides of parliament, Labor and Liberal, run the economy deliberately to have a certain level of unemployment. So right. MMT looks at how you have full employment, which means that MMT has engaged quite a lot with this question of Help, the robots are coming to take our jobs. That hysteria <laughs> that always comes up with new technology. Mm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, so 
my you know my takeaway on this is that you can you can use MMT to sort of look into this question of what might be the impact of AI on employment and on work, um, and um, you know the way I was thinking about this is that. There's probably two possible scenarios we could look at here, James. Right, here we go, a fork in the road. There we go. Uh, one scenario might be that, um, that AI is qualitatively different to any other kind of technological advance we've had mm. before. Mm. And I think there's good reason to think there might be. Mm. <laughs> um, um, you know, I've, had, I've uh, seen a little bit that tells me that AI could be a bit different. And then there's the other... The other scenario, which is that, you know, it might be a huge leap, it might be a huge change, but we've been through technological changes before yeah. and we know what that looks like on um, as far as the impact on work goes. Mm. And so that's my caveat, that's my disclaimer. We could use MMT to look at the second scenario, which is we kind of know what technological change will do for jobs. In the first scenario, I mean, I don't know about you, I had a look at this YouTube, which is called The AI Dilemma by Ooh. the Centre of Humane Technology. Yes. Have you With, seen uh, that one? Tristan yeah. Harris, is that right? Yes, that's the one. I, mm. I recommend people go and have a look at it because it's a good overview. They're doing great work over there, I think. Yes, yeah. They've, they've been very critical um, of uh, the impacts of online technology. Mm. And, you know, there were some things in that documentary that did make me um, pause. Mm. Um, and I think there are probably two characteristics that I can see around AI that say this is more than just, you know, um, the introduction of the combustion engine or something like that. Yeah. Which is that uh, AI um, seems to be able to evolve without human intervention. Yes. So that's kind of interesting. Um, mm. The example they were giving, I don't know if you've heard this one, Grace, is, um, you know, you might ask your little AI bot to go off and teach itself English. And then six months later, you discover that it's also taught itself French and German and Italian. And, and they don't know, as far as I can tell, they still don't know how it's doing this. Mm. Right. And they don't know when those leaps of knowledge are going to happen. So that's, that's different because it can evolve without human intervention. I can't think of any other technology that changes without human intervention. It becomes a runaway, a runaway monster of its own thing or potential monster. Potentially. I, I think it would be weird if like, there's no human intervention in any of the AI used because I think everything is literally created by the human. So like, it would be yeah. weird if there's actually no interconnection there with... Out with humans in general, so yeah, it's kind of weird. Yeah, mm. that's a weird characteristic. And then the other characteristic, <clears throat> I think that's a bit different, is that um, people will probably interact with AI and its products, like so. Its products are the chats and the text and the visuals, mm. as though it is another being, as though mm. it is maybe even another human. Mm. And so you can see that human tendency. Like, I don't know if you know anyone who's ever given their car a name. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah. Or if, I you've ever, if you've ever yelled at your computer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like we do have a tendency to interact with our tools that way. Mm. But AI will present itself as like another intelligence. Yeah. Mm. And, wow. and so what's society going to look like 
when um, you're relating to your AI bot more closely than you're relating to your family and friends, for example. <laughs> now, can you imagine? It's very much like a Black Mirror episode, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <clears throat> so so that's, that's way beyond my pay grade yeah. <laughs> to sort out. And it's way beyond, you know, any kind of economic theory. But if we come back to the scenario that uh, AI is like any other kind of a leap, then what can MMT tell us about that? Because, mm. of course, as we said before, MMT does look at automation and the impact of automation on jobs. Yes. Um, and so um, I feel like this is where um, MMT is the good news. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's quite interesting because, I mean, obviously last time, back then we would have our own interpreters and translators doing the jobs for people who want to translate any languages that they uh, that they need people to do so. And then obviously, especially in like events and everything, that's very important. Mm. So I guess this can be very helpful. But I guess we want to hear the talking. Can this, can this, can this machine make verbal conversations or is it just text literally because <laughs> i think that's what i was figuring out here with this like is it just entirely text like chat gbt no well i don't know as far as i understand it's going to put audio video and text kinds of oh, output then that's great because uh, <laughs> i think audio will be very helpful and beneficial to what we need yeah yeah so so if we take the mmt perspective and we move yep. away a little bit from the details of what AI does, and we just think of it as another technology. Mm-hmm. Um, the good news is, and this is why I like doing radio MMT, because I always think we're the good news show, even though mm. we spend a lot of time haranguing the mainstream economics and, yeah. and why they're so <sighs> terrible. MMT does offer an alternative way of looking at how the economy works, and that alternative has the solutions to unemployment. So... Um, the good news is that with technology and the hysteria around, you know, which we've seen multiple times over the decades, yeah. Um, what MMT points out and what other progressive economists point out as well is that, yes, technology changes jobs. Yes, technology can make jobs go away. But we have never seen technology take work away. Mm. <clears throat> So, <clears throat> excuse me. So work will always remain. There will always be stuff to be done, as far as we can tell. In scenario mm. two of AI, in scenario one, when it's just this explosive, amazing thing, maybe work will go away. Yeah. Who knows? But I, I, if we look at what's happened in the past, then then there's never a lack of stuff to be done. Mm. Even if that stuff is, say, around people caring for each other. Um, in ways that bots will never do, for example. So if you, if you think about it, you could say, well, like, how many stable hands do we have anymore? <laughs> like, yeah. There's a job that went away with the invention of the combustion engine, right? Mm-hmm. And then we can think about, I was thinking about the other day about people who, I think this happens as we speak, there are people in car washes in Australia who are detailing cars, you get five guys crawling over a car Mm. and they're being paid like $5 an hour. They're being exploited in that labour. Well, I'd be more than happy for a machine to take that job away, Mm. right? Um, So the good news is that um, 
that the technology will eliminate jobs, but it won't eliminate work. And the second piece of good news, too, that MMT tells us is that the federal government has the capacity to provide everyone a paid job who wants a paid job. Um, now, obviously, they're not doing that at the moment, and we could sort of look and ask ourselves mm. why. Um, but, of course, that's one of the things that got me into MMT as an unemployed worker. Yeah. Because I learned, you know, that uh, the capacity to give everyone a job is not being used and it's deliberately not being used. So um, that's that's where you, you sort of you get... That's where I think it's useful for everyone to understand how the economy really works. Fantastic. So you're saying no more un involuntary unemployment potentially. I potentially. That's a good cliffhanger for a little break. And then we'll get back to that. CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. You're back on Monday Breakfast on 855am 3CR. It's 8.18 in the morning and we are joined by Anne Maxwell, co-host of Radio MMT, who's talking us through this fantastic idea of economics where everyone could potentially have a job, which sounds too good to be true. It does, doesn't it? But apparently, (laughs) as Anne tells us, it's all to do with the money supply. Mm -hmm. How so, Anne? Well, uh, modern monetary theory, which is this school of economics that puts together the best of um, other schools of, in the past of heterodox economics. Mm. So economics tends to divide itself into the um, neoclassical, um, orthodox, mainstream economics that is currently running our economy. Mm. And then there are all these alternative ideas, and MMT is one of those sets of ideas. Uh, And what MMT tells us a lot about is how money is created. It describes the monetary system. Mm. And once you understand the monetary system, then you understand how the government has the capacity to create work. Right. And, of course, I think a lot of people walk around thinking, oh, if uh, jobs are going away, that's just the way it is. Um, You know, there's technology has taken jobs away or... um, uh, women being in the workforce has taken jobs away. That used to be an old argument. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and, of course, just before I go into the, the monetary system, just to leave people with this question, 
Uh, I find it very interesting that we have this narrative that technology is taking our jobs. Mm. And then we have this other narrative at the same time, which is we have an ageing population and there won't be enough people to do the jobs. So which is it? Do we have too many workers or not enough workers? <laughs> exactly. That's my thoughts right now. I'm just like, wait, so we have, so we, it's like we have enough jobs for everyone. That's a good thing. But then if the, AI, the technology is going to be taking it away, and then now comes the problem that people are going to go away as well. That's, and then it's just that's like... That's right. We've got an <laughs> aging population. So they wheel out these narratives, right, when mm. it suits them in order mm. to achieve whatever goal you want. Often you hear the aging narrative um, as a reason to bring in more immigrants. Okay. And I'm not opposed to that at all, except <clears throat> when it's done in an exploitative way, which is what often happens. Mm. Uh, so anyway, modern monetary theory um, <clears throat> is describing the monetary system. And in a nutshell, the monetary system is simply a, a legally codified accounting system. So money is accounting, mm -hmm. which means you're just keeping track of something, right? You're using yeah. numbers to keep track of something. Mm. So are we ever likely to run out of numbers? If you think of yourself going to a football game and you're watching the scorekeeper adding scores to the football board, yeah. do you ever sit there worrying that the umpire's going to run out of points? No. No. There's many points as there needs to be are there. That's right. So if uh, you're hearing that the federal government who issues the money, they issue the currency and they are the only entity in the economy that can do that, State governments can't do it. Businesses can't do it. Local governments can't do it. The federal government can issue the currency. Should we be worried that they're ever going to run out of dollars? No. 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 Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right answer. <laughs> Glad we understood. That's right. Because it is simply accounting. So the way money actually gets created is that we have a parliament. Okay. They make spending decisions. They make those spending decisions by creating a budget and that's why you want to be the majority in the parliament because you're the ones who get to make the budget. So at the moment, Labor's making the budgets. They put all their spending priorities into that budget. They do an appropriations bill, which is a bill that kind of adds up all the money that needs mm. to go with the budget. Mm -hmm. That bill gets passed to the Treasury. The Treasury and their economists do all their fancy calculations. They instruct the central bank the central bank types numbers into computers. So it's never going to run out of numbers to type into those computers. Right. And so, for example, if you're getting an unemployment check, so you're getting, say, your $500 that week, uh, that was the RBA, our central bank, typing those numbers into your, your commercial bank's account. So it might be, say, the Commonwealth Bank, mm -hmm. and they've typed the numbers into your account. So it's accounting and it's a process that most of us don't see and which gets covered up with a whole lot of stories, um, including, for example, that when the government does this spending mm. and it only has one way to spend and the only way the federal government can spend is by creating money through this process, uh, so people will say, well, the government's been doing all this spending and it's been spending more than it's taxing. Therefore, it's got a deficit. Therefore, the economy is in trouble. 
Mm. And so they all, this is this debt and deficit myth, is one of these myths that uh, MMT tries to um, talk about. And there's a book by Stephanie Kelton called The Deficit Myth, which uh, got a lot of airplay recently. And so people can go and look for that book if they want a, a fairly accessible understanding of why these myths exist. Uh, but this myth is like, what it forgets is that when the government spends, that money had to go somewhere. Yeah, right, for sure. Where did it go? It went into my pocket, it went into your pocket, it not went into the pocket of businesses. Definitely many, not. Many pockets. <laughs> Where else of pockets? <laughs> That's right. So it's in the private sector, in other words. Mm. So a government deficit equals a private sector surplus. So we should, really should think of the government deficit as its investment in the economy. Mm. So as soon as you think about that the government can never run out of money, then of course it's got the capacity to spend, to buy whatever is for sale in Australian dollars. And what's for sale in Australian dollars are people looking for paid work. Mm. So uh, one of the things you'll always hear MMTers talk about is the job guarantee. And that is a program that does a couple of things for your economy. And one thing it does is it offers everyone work who wants work. And we would say it should be at what they call a socially inclusive minimum wage. So socially inclusive means what? It means that you're not worried about whether you're paying your medical bills or your rent. You um, can go and see a movie every now and then. You can go out and have dinner every now and then. Mm. Mm. So, you know, the, the dollar amount that gets thrown around is at least 40000 a year if not more. Mm. So that's double the rate of the unemployment benefit at the moment, which is at half the poverty line. So we're bringing everyone above the poverty line and mm. then that acts as a floor under the entire wage structure throughout the, the um, wow. economy. Mm. Uh, so that that's one thing that the job guarantee does is it gives... We also want to see it give meaningful work, so not make work, not, yep. you know, fake bullshit jobs as they call them. Mm. So meaningful work could mean a lot of things. It just means you look around your, um, at your local community and say, what needs doing, for example? Yeah. Do we need more people at this radio station, for example, doing mm. stuff? Yeah, definitely. Do we need people um, out there weeding on, you know, toxic, noxious weeds from the riverbanks? You know, mm. all sorts of things you could be doing that aren't being done that the private sector, if they can't make a profit out of it, they won't offer those jobs. So we could do that through a job guarantee in the public sector. Wow. So there's, it's always win-win-win, I always think, yeah. the job guarantee. And then the other thing the job guarantee does is that it actually uh, stabilises the economy. Wow. And unemployment benefits, all unemployment benefits are known, <laughs> it's economic jargon, known as these economic stabilisers. Mm-hmm. And that's because they are doing the old Keynesian thing. If anyone knows their old Keynesian economics. Oh, yeah. Um, and this <laughs> is sort of the job guarantee kind of builds on that, which is that if an economy is slowing down, why is that happening? And that's because there's people are becoming unemployed. When they're becoming unemployed, they're spending less. If they're spending less, businesses are going to be selling less. If a business is selling less, it might start offloading people, so you'll get more unemployment. So you get this horrible, vicious cycle mm. with an economy. And a job guarantee would interrupt that cycle. 
because people would still have money. They, if they're losing their private sector jobs, they can tomorrow, <laughs> they could walk into a job guarantee office mm. and the guarantee part is they definitely walk out of that office with a job. I see. But that doesn't mean that, I mean, sorry, would that mean that it's actually meant to be better for the economy but and the government can spend more? Mm. So the government can spend whatever amount it would take okay. to employ everyone. Um, and I think there's been estimates done that it would be between about 1% to 3% of GDP, which translates, you know, to a few billions with a B dollars. Mm. Now, can the government do that? Let's think back to the COVID pandemic lockdowns. What happened when we had suddenly had the rate of unemployment benefits doubled overnight? So overnight. Job, job mm. seeker went went up double and then they had a job keeper they introduced a new program called job keeper they spent billions on that mm. it happened overnight and then it was their choice to roll it back again and there was no debt after that that we had to pay off so wow. that's the kind of the good news and so with ai yes definitely it can tr it can change the kind of work that'll be out there and yes, we're not saying that that transition won't be difficult. Like change is hard for anyone, right? Yep. And so if you see your job going away, that could be difficult, emotionally difficult, but it should not be financially difficult. That's the mm. message. We should be supporting everyone who's impacted by any kind of technological change. We should be supporting them financially. We should be giving them free retraining, free counselling, um, we could be giving, um, we should be expanding the public service to create more jobs in, re, you know, decarbonisation and more infrastructure and let me know. And, um, you know, we could be paying for early generous retirements and, of course, we could have a job guarantee. All of those things the government can afford to do, the federal government. Mm, no yeah, discounts. Fantastic. The government should have discounts. <laughs> <laughs> I, was good. I was thinking of that where like, oh, no discounts because you're talking about sales. So I was like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're coming up on time. Thank you so much for coming in, Anne. That was fantastic. I learned oh, a lot. Happy to speak with you about my favourite topic. <laughs> modern, that's modern monetary theory, folks. Thank you, Anne. Um, so just a quick recap. In conventional economic approaches, AI could have thousands of job losses or millions without them being replaced. In MMT logic, the government has the capacity to give Everyone who loses a job through AI automation via the job guarantee. Correct. How good. So that's just about it for Monday Breakfast. Mm. Great show today, Grace. Very interesting and explained everything so well. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.